Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good, excellent. Good morning to those of you joining us online as well. Um, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been in a series where we've been going through really the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that we've called the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I know I've heard a lot, of, a number of people say, this has been a really good series. It's been a really bizarre series, a really you know, unique series in that what we're looking at, it, it is unique. It is different. It is, a lot of what we're talking about is very symbolic. There's a lot of imagery. It can seem a little confusing, even a little scary a little bit at times. And I think that, will, that all that stuff is gonna continue today. But I hope that as we look at what we're gonna look at today, that it will just, more of it will make sense to you and you'll feel more encouraged by it. But, but this whole book, the book of Revelation was written by a guy named John, the, the disciple and pastor John who wrote this book. And he wrote this while he was imprisoned on an island, the island of Patmos. And he was on, in prison on this island because he was a Christian, because of his faith, because he refused to worship the emperor, emperor the Roman emperor Domitian. And so because of that, he was put there on this island. And, and while he's there, he's worshiping God one day and he has this revelation he has this apocalypse. He, God appears to him and basically and essentially puts on this five-act play for John. That's what we've, as we've been talking about it. And it was all meant to encourage him. It was meant to encourage him. And it was meant to then be passed on to the churches that John pastored to encourage them as well, who were in this intense season of persecution and pressure from the Roman Empire. And so far, we're kind of... A, kind of come to the middle of this series or around the middle. And, and in this five-act drama, we're in the second act, the last two weekends. We've been talking about act two, if you want to think of it like that. Uh, and so today we're going to finish that up. We're going to finish up act two, looking at chapters eight through 11, which is a, a good chunk. And, and, and if, so if you're here today, uh, I'm just going to kind of apologize if it's your first time here that you're kind of, it's going to feel kind of like walking into the, a movie theater and realizing that the movie is almost over, right? And you, you're trying to put the pieces together of who are these characters and what's going on. But, but, but I want to encourage you to just hang in there and also to, to go back and to watch or to listen the, the previous weeks. I think it'll Click and make a lot more sense. And if it gets confusing today, because there's going to be, all, we're going to be moving fairly quickly. I just want to encourage you to keep your eyes on two characters, and and the first character is keep your eyes on where's Jesus. That's always a good thing. Where's Jesus at? And where's John, the person who wrote? Like where's John? If you can keep your eyes on those two things, those two people, then that'll really help. Kind of. The main, the main part. So I do want to, I do kind of want to recap a little bit of what we've talked about the last few weeks, because what we're going to talk about today is still a part of that same act or that same play, if you want to think of it like that way. So two weeks ago, I talked about Revelation 4, 5. And if it would help to kind of imagine, I want you to help imagine that this play is being enacted on this stage. Okay, so in Revelation 4, 5, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how a door was opened to heaven and John was invited to come in and to watch. And so let's imagine like if there was a curtain 
on this stage. The curtain is drawn back and all of a sudden John is sitting in the front row and he's gonna watch this play, this drama be enacted here on the stage. And in Revelation 4, 5, what does John see first? If you were here a couple weeks ago, maybe you remember this. What does John see first? First thing he sees is a throne. He sees the throne of God and radiant God is sitting on the throne. And there are 24 other thrones back here with 24 elders and there are four living creatures and thousands of angels. So the stage might need to be a little bit bigger in your imagination than this one. But imagine that's all taking place back here. And there, the, the, all these creatures and angels and elders, they're worshiping God. They're worshiping God on the throne. And God is holding this scroll in his hand. We talked about this a couple weeks, weeks ago. He's holding this scroll, but it's, it's completely sealed up. It has seven seals on it. Seven meaning complete. It's completely sealed up. And, and imagine John's in the front row and he, he sees this and he begins to get sad. He begins to weep. He begins to cry. And it's almost like at this point, like, because nobody can open the scroll. There's nobody worthy enough to open the scroll at this point. So John is sad. And, but it's almost like at this point, one of the elders pauses the play and says, John, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Look, the lion can open the scroll. And it's like if John, imagine, I imagine John's hands in it, or head in his hands crying and he looks up and he expects to see a lion, but does he see a lion? No, what's he see? He sees a lamb. He sees a slain little baby lamb at the center of the throne. And that's Jesus. Jesus is, that's Jesus' costume in this play. He, he's, the, he's the slain lamb. And he is worthy enough to open the scroll and break the seven seals and open them up. And so like they just begin to worship Everybody begins to worship. And that's kind of, imagine, that's what we talked about two weeks ago happening. And imagine that kind of happening back here. Now, last weekend, Michael talked about chapters six and seven and, and what happened when these seven seals were opened. And I want us to kind of imagine if that was taking place over here on the stage with these seven seals. And, and if you were here last week, it got a little scary in a sense. These, these, when, as Jesus opened each seal, there were horsemen that came onto the stage and there was, things were being destroyed. There was destruction, there was death. The people in the church are crying out to God. They're praying to God, how long, O oh Lord, will you let this go on? May your kingdom come as it is in heaven here on earth, right? They're, they're crying out, they're praying, how long, how long during the opening of these seven seals. And then that gets us to chapters eight through 11, which we're going to talk about today. And I want us to imagine that that's taking place up here, up here in what we're going to talk about today. But all that during this whole time, where's Jesus? He's still there. He's still on the throne. The lamb of God is still on the throne as all this is taking place. So, so we'll use our imaginations today. And I hope that helps kind of give a little bit of a recap of where we're at, but let me pray and then we'll dive into looking at these chapters. So Jesus, I do ask, Lord, that as we look at chapters eight through 11 here, that you would help us not only to continue to imagine this scene happening before us, but will you also help us to learn what you want us to, to learn about it, to, to teach us in these chapters? We help the scene not only come alive, but also help us to know how you want us to apply it to our lives today. Pray that in your name, amen, amen. Now in chapters eight and 11, very similar to chapters six and seven, where there were seven seals being opened and chapters eight and 11, there are gonna be seven trumpets 
that are gonna be blown by seven angels. Seven angels come forth and they're gonna blow these seven trumpets. And I'm gonna kind of summarize them a little bit because again, we, we would be here all day or I'd have to talk like an auctioneer if we were gonna get through all of this. So to kind of summarize, when the first trumpet is blown, it says it's accompanied by hail and fire mixed with blood on earth. Again, very kind of unpleasant, scary imagery. And one third of the earth and the trees and the grass are burned up. And then the second trumpet is blown by the second angel. And it says that a, a great burning mountain is thrown into the sea and one third of the sea and one third of the creatures living in the sea and one third of the ships are all affected and destroyed. And when the third trumpet is blown, a great star falls from heaven and a third of the rivers and the springs are poisoned. And then the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun, moon, stars darken, disrupting day and night. So the first four trumpets are blown pretty quickly. We don't get a ton of information. This is pretty much what we get. And what we see here is John is watching this drama play out on the stage. And what he's basically watching is nature going wacky, right? Nature has gone berserk. And, it is, and there's some similarities to this as in like the 10 plagues that happen in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with that story where you have these, these plagues happening and earth is kind of going berserk in Egypt when Moses goes to Pharaoh demanding that he let his people go and then he stopped enslaving them. These, these judgments, if you want to think of it like that, occurring in this play are very similar to the judgments or the plagues happening in Egypt during that time in Exodus. But starting with the fifth trumpet, very similar pattern to with the seals, the fifth seal that was open, we talked about last week in chapter nine here, we begin to get more details. We get more details of the effects and they seem to just be increasing and getting worse and worse. With the fifth trumpet, another star falls from heaven, an angel whose name means destroyer. It's often thought of as a reference to Satan here, comes onto the scene and, and he rules over these locusts that come up out of the pit, it says, out of the abyss. Maybe we imagine like this is down here in the orchestra pit, right, of our stage or whatever. The locusts are coming up out of that onto the stage. And these locusts are described as having teeth like a lion and tails like uh, with a stinger, like a scorpion. And, and they're causing all this destruction and death here on earth. But what's interesting is it says in, it says in there that they are not allowed to harm the people who have a seal, the seal of God on their foreheads. And if you hear last week, we had, Michael talked about that, the seal of God on people's foreheads. And, 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 uh, and then it says the sixth trumpet blasts and that releases four angels bound up at the Euphrates River with an army to kill one third of mankind. And so, he, so we have, again, it just keeps getting more, incrementally worse and worse and worse, it seems like. And what's interesting to this is the people living in John's day and age who would have heard this, uh, you know, to, to us, Euphrates River, that doesn't really mean a lot. But to them, they would have understood this, that in the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River was like along the easternmost border of the Roman Empire. And it was where the Romans expected or anticipated if there was gonna be an invasion if another army was gonna come and it was gonna come across the Euphrates River. 
And so, so this is a very symbolic uh, of that idea of an, an army coming and threatening their empire. So, so with each of these first six trumpets, again, the effects seem to just get worse and worse and worse, which is a very similar pattern to what we saw happening with this first six seals last weekend. But remember this imagery, it's all symbolic. It's all symbolic, but it is meant to make it very clear that judgment on earth is, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. When we read these dreadful things happening uh, with the seals last week, the trumpets this week, we need to remember, where is Jesus? He's still here. He's still on the throne. He's still in control, even if it seems like he's not. He's still on the stage of this, this place. So the qu next question might be, well, well why? Why is Jesus letting all this stuff happen? All this destruction and death happen? Well, uh, the reason is because Jesus is playing the part of the sacrificial lamb. He's playing his part. And by playing his part, what did he do by being the sacrificial lamb? He, he simultaneously enacted both justice and mercy at the same time. By, be, from the, by, by laying aside being the lion and by becoming the lamb, he is enacting both justice and mercy. Jesus didn't set aside being the lion to become the lamb and die on the cross because he thought it would be fun. He did it because he's a God of both justice and mercy at the same time. You know, the, the martyred souls that we talked about last weekend, if you were here, that were crying out for justice to be done, Right? Where the churches that John was pastoring who are experiencing persecution and some of them are dying, they are crying out, God, how long? Where are you? Will you bring your justice? Somebody has to pay for this. Something has to pay. Jesus chose to pay. Justice has to be done. With each of the opening of the seals, God is bringing justice, but with each of the blowing of the trumpets, he's also declaring mercy. And you might think, well, this doesn't sound merciful. How is this, how can this be merciful? How is mercy in this at all? Well, trumpets, one of the things that trumpets were used for in biblical times was they served as a warning, as a warning to, to the world. Trumpets were blown as a warning sign from the walls of a city when a storm was coming or an enemy was invading. It's God's mercy that he is warning humanity of the danger coming. It's also God's mercy that only one third of the earth in this drama seems to be getting affected and not everything, or not two thirds of it being destroyed. It could have been two thirds destroyed, one third saved. It's not, it's flipped. Two thirds are saved, only one third is destroyed. It's mercy. These first six trumpets, these first six judgments or plagues in a sense, they're, they're essentially meant to wake up the world and encourage everyone who is far from God to turn to him and to repent, to repent. To be, they're meant to be evangelistic. But at the end of chapter nine, after the sixth trumpet call, it says this in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, bronze stone, uh, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. 
The lamb is both a God of justice and mercy. He wants everyone to repent, but still it says here at this point, they have not. They have not. So what happens next in between the blasting of the sixth and the seventh trumpet is super interesting. What is God gonna do next to warn everybody if all of this stuff so far hasn't got their attention? Well, his plan next is very interesting. It's to use John, who's sitting in the front row, remember? It's to use John, it's to use the church, it's to use you, and it's to use me. If we keep reading in Revelation 10, Imagine again, imagine John is, is here in the front row in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blast. God, it's almost like God pauses and he invites John up from the front row to play a part in the play, to take on a role, in a sense to come up on stage. And he gives John two things to do. He gives John two things to do. The first he says is, I, I want you to eat this little scroll, this little, this little scroll with this message on it, which yeah, that can't taste good, right? Paper, like, like, can I get some salt for this, right? Like, like he, he invites him to eat this scroll and the angel that gives it to him says, when you eat this, it's gonna taste sweet at first and then sour in your stomach. And what does that mean? Well, again, it's not a, he's not actually saying he wants us all to eat paper, right? It's a, it's a symbolic. What he's saying is I have this message for you and I want you to take it in. I want you to consume it. And in this message that you're gonna be my messenger, it's gonna taste both sweet and sour. It is going to be received as both good and bad. It is going to be both justice and mercy. It is, some are going to hear it and repent and it's gonna be the sweetest thing they've ever heard in their life. And some are gonna hear it and they're gonna hate it and they're gonna hate you for it. The gospel is both sweet to some and sour to others. In chapter 11, John gets his second task, and I want to read this to you. We're going to camp in chapter 11 now for the rest of the time. It says this in verse 1, I, John, was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So after John eats this scroll, the second thing he's told to do is measure something. He's given a stick and he says, I want you to go measure this. I want you to go measure the temple of God and the altar. There's just one problem with that. There is no more temple. There is no more altar. At this point in history, the time John is on this island, uh, it's been a few decades probably since the Romans came in and destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem, the actual temple and the altar. So it does not exist anymore. And so it's not, it's not talking about a literal temple. And that shouldn't surprise us because pretty much most of Revelation isn't spent most to be taken literally. It's symbolic. And so what is this temple John is supposed to measure? Well, it's the people of God. It's the people of God. We see this idea clearly developed in other parts of the New Testament. First Corinthians 3.16, it says this, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. Second Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God, just as he has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. First Peter 2, 5 says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house or a temple for a holy priesthood. John is told here to measure the temple, meaning go measure the people of God. For what purpose? Why is he measuring the temple? It's, it's to check. 
It's to count. It's to take inventory of the people of God. But it's interesting here that John is told what not to measure as well. He's told not to measure the outer court of the temple. Revelation 11 too, we read this already here. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, to explain that, when the temple did exist before, when it did, it did exist, an actual tangible temple in Jerusalem, it had these courts, these concentric courts as, as, at the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies where God himself lived, the presence of God lived. And then there, were, there, there was these other courts and the outermost court was for the Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish people, the people who were not the repentant people of God and didn't have a relationship with God. That was reserved for them. And he says, I don't want you to measure that yet. I don't want you to take inventory of that yet because the Gentiles are gonna trample on the holy city for 42 months. God is gonna allow the Gentiles to symbolic, trample on this symbolic city. Well, why 42? Why 42? In Revelation again, remember, are numbers statistics or are they symbols? They're symbols. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. They're symbols. Numbers are always symbols. So what is 42 a symbol of? 42 is a very biblical number. 42 is the number of generations between Abraham and Jesus. Fulfillment or promise to fulfillment, right? 42 is the number of stages the Israelite people took across the desert of Egypt to get to the promised land because they had worshiped a false idol. God was gonna take them right into the promised land. And God says, nope, you need more time apparently. And so for 42 stages, I'm gonna, you're gonna have to wait till you come to the promised land. 42 is the number of months it did not rain in the Old Testament when the prophet Elijah called the people to repentance. 42, interestingly, is also equal to three and a half years. 12 months plus 12 months plus 12 months plus six months equals 42 months. Three and a half years or three and a half, the number three and a half is half of what? Half of seven. Seven, which is an, an, the number of completeness, the number of perfection. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks too. 42 represents a period of time of waiting between the promises of God and the fulfillments of God in the Bible. It represents an in-between time period, you know, of, of overlap between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, right? Michael talked about this last week, the, the overlapping of the two ages, of the, of the present evil age and the future age to come. This overlapping of, of the effects of D-Day to V-Day, if you were here again last week in Michael's analogy of, of that with World War II, right? It's this in-between time, this in-between time that is being represented here, but it's an in-between time period with an opportunity, with an opportunity, and that's so key. It's an opportunity of both repentance and witness. Repentance and witness. God is allowing his city, symbolic city, to be trampled on in hopes that those outside of relationship with him would eventually repent. Seeing the six judgments with the, six first, the first six trumpets blast, they didn't repent. So why is this gonna be any different? Why are they gonna repent now during this in-between time, this overlapping time? Well, let's see what God plans next and says what's gonna happen next. Verse three, I will appoint my two witnesses 
and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. God says, I'm gonna send my two witnesses to call them to repentance for 1,260 days. Do you know what 1,260 days equals if you have a typical 30-day month? 42. 42 months, exactly. This is the same thing. It's the same time period, right? 42 months, and you add that to 1,260 days, another 42 months, you get seven years, seven, completeness, right? So during this overlapping time period of the two kingdoms, these two witnesses are going to prophesy. They are called to witness. They are called to share the good news of Jesus and invite others to worship the lamb as well. And why do we know they're calling them to repentance? We know that because of what they're wearing, sackcloth. In the Old Testament, sackcloth was a symbol of repentance. It's, it's uncomfortable, it's itchy, you don't want to wear it. It's not comfortable. And so it's a symbol of humility, of saying, I've done, I've, I've done wrong, I need to ask for forgiveness. And, and kings and priests and uh, prophets would put on sackcloth at times as a, as a symbol of what was going, of their humility in their heart, of repenting, of please forgive me, Lord, please forgive us as a people. We wanna turn back to you, we wanna follow you, God. And so that's what they're calling the people to do. And it says they're going to be, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands. Olives, olive oil represents anointing. God's holy anointing presence being upon somebody for a task, for a purpose, in this case, to be his witnesses. You also need oil, olive oil, to burn in your lamps, to give off light, to help others be able to see, to see, to have an apocalypse for their eyes to be opened, to see the good news of Jesus. And what do these two lampstands represent? Well, if you remember, if you remember in Revelation in Act 1, the very early chapters of Revelation, there were lampstands, seven of them. And do you remember what they represented? They represented the churches, the seven churches. Jesus, in Act 1, Jesus is standing among these seven lampstands representing these seven churches, and he has messages for each one of them. And so you might think, well, why aren't there seven lampstands then? Why are there only two? Why are there only two? Well, Daryl Johnson, who we've been referring to a lot in this series, points out that of those seven churches that Jesus had messages for, only two of them at that point in time had been fulfilling their witnessing responsibilities. Only two of them, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. The other five had failed in some way of fulfilling their lampstand witness responsibility up to this point. He says this about the churches. Uh, Ephesus lost its first love. Pergamum and Thyatira tolerated the spirit of compromise. Sardis was wealthy and famous, but self-absorbed and dead. Laodicea was lukewarm. Only two of the seven churches had the oil of the two olive trees burning in their lamps. This section is a parable. It's a parable to remind us and encourage the people of God to continue to be the true two witnesses and call the people to repentance, to turn away from false idols and false worship and turn towards the one true lamb of God who's worthy of worship, 
who's the true emperor on the throne. And it goes on in verse seven to say this, what will happen to those two witnesses? It says this, now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. We have a new character being introduced here. Whoa, this, this beast, this beast who we will see in future acts come back again. At this point in the drama though, what we know about the beast is the beast will come and it says, will kill and overpower these witnesses. And why? Why does the beast want to do that? What does he have against the witnesses? Well, well, nothing really against the witnesses. What he has a problem with is who they are witnessing about. He does not want anyone to hear this good news. He does not want anyone to hear what they are witnessing about and who they are proclaiming as Lord and God. He doesn't want that. And so he's trying to stop them. He's trying to stop them. He is trying to stop these two witnesses who are the church. He's trying to kill the church. And it seems like he succeeds. Verse eight, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. These are two places, Sodom and Egypt, two places that represent great evil and oppression in the Old Testament, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, there's that number again, three and a half, half of seven, right? Uh, Some from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze at their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those living on the earth. Tormented, that seems a little extreme. How are they tormenting? How are they tormenting them? Well, because they're calling the people to repentance. They're calling them to repentance. They're confronting them of their sinful ways. And again, the message is sweet to some, but sour to others. Some will hate it, it says. But after three and a half days, the breath of of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at this very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a 10th of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The two witnesses representing the church seems dead, but it is not dead. It is revived. Revival breaks out. It seems dead, but it is not. It comes back to life. And in verse 13, this is so important when the earthquake occurs and one-tenth of this city falls, uh, 7,000 people are killed. Again, is this statistics? No, symbols, symbols. Symbols of what? Symbols of justice and mercy again. Symbols of justice and mercy again. Justice, okay, that makes sense. Judgment is happening, right? Earthquake, 10th of the city falling, but mercy? Where's the mercy in this? Where's the mercy in one-tenth of the city falling and 7,000 people dying? Well, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, it speaks about God saving one-tenth, but nine-tenths falling. In the book of Amos, it talks about a city of 1,000, but only 100 will survive. 900 will die. All throughout the Old Testament, it seems like a very small remnant. One-tenth seems to survive and carry on, but here it is flipped. It is flipped. 
It is flipped. God has done a great reversal, a just thing, yes, but also a merciful thing. Instead, now nine-tenths will survive. Only one-tenth will be lost. In a city of 70,000, only 7,000 will die. 63,000 will survive. It's God's generous mercy that he flips the script. And again, in Revelation eleven thirteen, how do the survivors who just mocked the witnesses bodies respond? At the end of 13, it says they were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. In the end, what do they do? In the end, they give glory to God in heaven. In the end, they worship him. In the end, they are repentant. And how does God do it? He does it through the witness of the church. He does it through us. As after this, after this symbolic event that the final trumpet, the seventh trumpet will now sound. Verse 15, it says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and this Messiah. The overlapping time period of the two kingdoms is no more. The kingdom of this present evil age is officially done. It is just the kingdom of heaven now. It's just the kingdom of God now fully established. And he, talking about Jesus, will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, remember they're still up here, the 24 elders who are still on the scene, who are seated on their thrones before God, they fall on their faces. They worship God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The one who is and who was. This phrase is really interesting. It has appeared before in Revelation, but it's missing a part here now. It's missing a piece. The piece that is not included in here is this phrase, and the one who is to come. It's not here. And why is it not here? All, all before, we've, when we've seen this phrase, it always includes, and the one who is to come. It's not here because there is no more to come. It's come. It's done. It's done. The kingdom of God at this point is fully established on earth as it is in heaven. It's fully here. And that is the end of act two, close the curtain. And so I wanna invite the worship team to come back up and I wanna just make a couple practical points and a couple, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Cause I know that was a lot, a lot of information today. And again, remember, this is all a play. And so I would encourage you, go back and read these chapters this week, read them a couple of times, like try to imagine this play being performed before us. But the invitation, I believe, of God has been a couple of things over the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, at the beginning of this act, when the lamb is on the throne, you know, I think the invitation was to worship. It's to worship. It's to worship the one who is worthy. If you were here two weeks ago, that's what we talked about. It's to worship the one who is worthy. Last week with the seven seals, Michael talked about chapter six and seven. The invitation to us was to pray. It's to pray, to pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, to pray for God's justice and his mercy to come. And today with the seven trumpets, what's the invitation? The invitation is to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses, to be like John and to come up on the stage and to play the role that God has invited us to play, 
to be his, his witnesses in this interlude time before the seventh trumpet calls, to be like the witnessing churches in sackcloth, to be repentant ourselves first, and then to call others to repentance, to be a light, to be a lampstand into shining into the world, to share the good news with those around us in our city, right? In our towns, in our communities, right? And, 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 and to invite people into relationship with the lamb, to do that. But it's hard and it can feel a bit scary and it feels like there's a target on their, our backs because there is, there is. And it can feel like the enemy, the beast is trying to kill us, kill the church. And it, 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 that's true, but we don't have to be afraid. And why do we not have to be afraid? Because where is the lamb this whole time? He's right here. He's on the throne. And while it seems like he might not be in control, he's in control. And in the end, he wins. In the end, he wins. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.